You're listening to Freshly Brewed, Episode 9. I'm your host, Jeff. Today's episode is going to be the second part of a multi-part series that I'm doing on wine. In the first part of this series, I spoke with three really talented sommeliers about the must-know elements of wine. It was a very fruitful discussion. Today, the conversation continues, and I have the pleasure of speaking with Ian Casterton, a sommelier based in British Columbia. Ian works for the prestigious Botanist Restaurant at the Fairmont Pacific Rim, and also has experience on the business side of wine, most recently managing supplier relations for a wine and spirits company in Toronto. I'm really excited to talk more with Ian about wine and serving wine in a hotel, the business of wine, what to look for when you're looking at a wine list, and hopefully he'll answer some more questions I have about some of the myths around wine. So grab your wine, take a sip, let's get going. Ladies and gentlemen, you're listening to Freshly Brewed. Here's your host, Jeff Fenton. Freshly Brewed, episode nine, and we are here with Ian Casterton, he is all the way across the country in British Columbia. Ian, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Jeffrey. Thanks for having me. Ian, I, I love to start by asking, what is your COVID setup? How much wine have you already consumed today? Help us learn a little bit more. <laughs> uh, well, the caffeine has always been high, and that's definitely reaching all-time high during this. But surprisingly, even surprisingly myself, I'm actually on a little bit of a break from alcohol. Uh, you know, I think I'm on dry spell day number nine. Um, at the very beginning, I was sinking into my cellar a little bit. I was opening up some nice stuff just because I was thinking, oh, well, you know, like, why not? And then I kind of just figured, you know, this is the first time I don't need to taste wine every day. I don't need to, to really have that much around. So I thought it'd be good to take a little break. So if if a so you're a sommelier and so if a sommelier doesn't have wine for nine days is that like dog years like it's the equivalent of like you've you effectively uh, you're off you're off the wine map now. There's definitely a portion of my brain that has to turn off uh, for sure because I'm so used to having a sip and thinking, oh, you know, is this a good quality wine? Where does it come from? Where's the vintage? Because if I have a bottle of wine that I love. That I just happen to pick up at the wine store, so that kind of sends me down. A, that sends me down a rabbit hole. You know, I start googling it and getting into it. Uh, so there's definitely that part that's turned off. But I find actually this is kind of funny. Vancouver, it's middle of spring. It's beautiful outside. Mm-hmm. Flowers blooming. I find that I'm smelling a lot more things. You know, like it's it's uh, I'm I'm smelling the street that I walk down, thinking like, oh yeah, that's that smells like a nice Barolo right now. Uh, <laughs> Which kind of makes me thirsty, but you know, I, I have heard that when one sense is limited or uh, taken away from you, your others are heightened. I certainly uh, n- I noticed myself noticing things I was not noticing before the world kind of flipped on its uh, on its head. So I'm not surprised that uh, cement on the street or trees smell like like wine to you. Um, the the listeners know that. Speaking with Ian, he's a sommelier based in uh, in BC here in Canada. What more do we need to know about you? Who is Ian Casterton? Uh, yeah, well, I'm a wine geek at the end of it, pretty much. Um, 
I was raised by a family that loved to travel and food is high on the priority list. Uh, I grew up in a kitchen uh, helping my mom out because that was the only safe place away from my two older brothers. <laughs> so it was kind of no surprise that I developed a love for food and drink and wine became a passion when I went to New Zealand for an exchange program in my undergraduate degree. I, I took this course it said professional wine studies. I mean, like, how do you say no to that as an undergraduate student? You, know, you don't. Like, Fun. <laughs> I didn't. Uh, and it was hard. It was taught by New Zealand's only master sommelier, Cameron Douglas, who um, getting a master sommelier to teach a course is, uh, it's huge. I mean, it's like the real industry, like top of the top. And my jaw just hit the floor. It turns out it was wine's everything that I always loved. It's history, geography, food, people, and of course, throw in some alcohol and you got a whole bunch of fun. Um, so when I came back to Canada, I just started selling wine. I wanted to start selling wine and I sold it direct to restaurants. I ended up getting this great gig um, with a Toronto agency. Agencies are like Ontario's importers um, as a portfolio manager. So. Half the year, I'd travel, I'd meet our suppliers, I'd uh, come up with marketing plans, start selling wine, and then the second half of the year, they'd come to Ontario and we'd sell the LCBO. So uh, lots of fun. It just further got me into more and more wine, more information. Um, but the world of wine is just too big, and, and I just had to get out of Toronto. I had to start traveling. I had to see a lot more. Um, and also, I needed to get on a restaurant floor. I've, I've had my sommelier pin for since 2015 because mm -hmm. um, it's a test at the end of the day, but I hadn't actually worked in a restaurant prior to that. And food is so vital to the industry that I needed to get on the floor. So yeah, I've been in a sommelier for the last couple of years and it's been a lot of fun. Uh, one of the things you mentioned is it's, you know, f food and beverage and maybe by extension, hospitality has been a part of your life your whole life what about wine and kind of all the elements of it speak so much to you because the thing that i've learned in speaking with sommeliers and in doing a bit more research in this area is that there's so much passion <laughs> there's there's it, it goes so deep yeah it's what i always found so interesting was the stories behind it um I always loved hearing and speaking about not necessarily the flavor profiles of a wine. You know, when I'm talking to a guest at a restaurant, I'm not telling them what they should be tasting or what it is they should sort of expect from this wine. I'm telling them what makes it interesting because wine is it's so interesting because it's, it's a product. It's a good, but it's a good that's able to transport you to a a time and a place and even in the best scenarios a mindset you know whether it's a biodynamic or, or organic farmer um, or it's a guy who you know was in this is one of my favorite producers you know he it was his name is Domain Gibuto it's in the Loire Valley he was a successful law student in his early 20s but then he got a call from his family saying hey you need to come help on the farm and, you know, imagine, I can't imagine doing that, being in Paris, early 20s, you know, you're going to be a successful lawyer. And then all of a sudden, your farm in the middle of nowhere calls you up and says, we need your help. And then he answers, and then he creates this beautiful wine, and he dedicates himself to a whole new way of life because that's what his family needed. It's, I think it's great. 
So what hotel do you work at in Vancouver? I'm at the Fairmont Pacific Rim, uh, downtown Vancouver, and I am a sommelier at the bot- at Botanist Restaurant. For our listeners who aren't familiar, that is a, I would say, a very upscale, very beautiful hotel. And you're also obviously in a, in a city um, that attracts a ton of tourists. And I think Vancouver is one of the most multicultural cities in the world. What's it like to be a sommelier in a restaurant at one of these unbelievable and premium hotels? Yeah, absolutely. It's, it is beautiful. I mean, Fairmont, for those listeners that know Fairmont, it's a big Canadian company in North America. Uh, they've got a history of, of being in old chateaus, older buildings, but the Pacific Rim is only about 10 years old, new building, new design, very based on art design, culture, food and drink. Um, it's a just beautiful landscape. And it's fun. I mean, we get a whole whack load of different customers, you know, from people that are on the way up to Whistler to people from, from conventions. Um, so in terms of working at the restaurant there, it's really about preparing for the unknown. You know, how do you get most prepared for what you might not know who's coming through the door? Um, cause the goal at the end of the day is to create an extraordinary experience for the guests. So how do you do that? How do you, comp- how do you prepare for that? And there's a great Ted talk, by a gentleman named Bobby Stuckey, who's a master sommelier in Boulder, Colorado. He talks about being a hospitalian. Uh, he, it's the importance of empathy. Like, what can you do to truly make your guests feel important, to feel individual? How do you put yourself in their shoes to anticipate their needs? And that's really what we try to do at Botanist and at Fairmont Pacific Rim is feel empathetic, is anticipate our guests' needs. So, uh, you know, a day in the life of Somalia there is, is getting in that mindset. So there's a lot of work behind the scenes for that. You know, first, you have to know your wine program inside and out. You know, can you speak to the producer's winemaking style, the particulars of that vintage, why that grape variety is so important for the region? But then also, you need to know the facts, but also the way to communicate it. Because you might have someone that knows knows their shit, like it's serious, they're serious wine drinkers and they got some great questions and you can get real in depth. Or you might have somebody who's on a first date, never really, you know, maybe a young couple, never, you know, open up a wine list and, and, you know, you, I always joke around saying, you know, we're on the same team here. You know, I'm, I'm taking care of you. Don't worry about it. Um, so the sommeliers need to be an expert on their wine program. Um, and then second, the basics need to be absolutely perfect. Wine glass is polished, wine's all at the right temperature, everything is pristine. Because if I'm a guest and I'm in the Fairmont Pacific Rim, I've got high expectations. Because it's a beautiful hotel, one of the nicest in Vancouver, most expensive. This is a beautiful restaurant. Uh, and if I sit down at my table and I see an unpolished wine glass, you know, whether subconsciously or, or consciously, that guest might think, well, you know, if that's not right, if that's not perfect, how can they handle a one, two, three hundred? dollar bottle of wine well so it's all about getting getting ready ready for that i imagine that the expectations are heightened even further just by virtue of being part of the hotel right people's expectations in hotels especially premium hotels are very high so it must put a lot of pressure on you um i'll be honest rarely 
have I ever asked to speak to a sommelier when I've gone to a restaurant? And the more I'm learning, the more I'm realizing that that's a mistake because it's such an incredible resource. So how, how could someone best take advantage of a sommelier and a wine list and use that to create a really great experience? That's a great question. Trust the process. You know, we're there, sommeliers are there for a reason. Servers are there are to take care of you. You know, they'll make sure your dietary preferences are covered. You're going to make the hockey game on time. Your partner gets that surprise, birthday dessert, all of that. Sommeliers are there to heighten that experience. And we want to do that by making it comfortable. So the first thing I would say is, yeah, have a chat for sure. Um, and be open. Be open with your budget is always a lot of fun. Uh, and, you know, if, if you want to be subtle, that's get it. I trust me. I understand. You know, you can open up a wine list and you can point to, you know, the price of one bottle and say something like this. Like, I get it. You know, you want to spend 80, 100, whatever, maybe 60, whatever, maybe. I'm not here to gouge you. You know, I'm going to make sure that what you're looking for in what budget and what you like is the utmost priority. And then second is what do you drink at home? And if you like Kim Crawford Sauvignon Blanc, you drink that home a lot, you drink that at home a lot. And are you willing to expand beyond that? So in my mind, if, if I hear a guest say, you know, this is the wine I drink at home, um, but I'd love to try something new. To me, that means, okay, Kim Crawford Sauvignon Blanc, it's a New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc, it's got a lot of acidity, it's crisp, uh, it's high intensity. So to me, if they're looking for something new, I'm going to take the, the details of that wine that I know very well and transfix it onto a new bottle of wine in that price point to go with their meal. Like I said, all the bases are covered. I'm just here to sort of supplement everything, just make that experience more heightened. Is, would you say that every or most nicer restaurants will have a sommelier or trained sommelier in, in, on the staff? Uh, it's more and more so, which is fantastic. Um, it all depends. Yeah. Very much so. Uh, definitely in Vancouver, there's a lot of sommelier servers. Um, there's de in North America especially, there's definitely a dual role. You know, sommeliers might be the manager. Uh, they might be a server where they have a section, but then if a you know a guest in another server section has a, a big wine question, they get called over. Um, there's few restaurants that just have sommeliers, just there to be floaters, just there to support staff. That's what Botan is. We, I am a sommelier. I don't have a section. I don't manage. I'm I'm there to sell wine, um, and that's more of an approach that you see in London. Like there's definitely sommeliers that just talk wine. But yeah, same in Canada, same in North America and the States. It's really about, you know, supplementing one other responsibility. Um, but yeah, there, as we go on, there's definitely more focus on wine programs, which is excellent. So shifting from serving and being in the actual establishment to the wine brands and bottles themselves and, and actually shifting to, to the business and, and marketing of wine. Sure. I am absolutely blown away when I walk into a, a liquor store 
here in Ontario, we have the LCBO, but you know, there's many different bottle shops depending on where you are. And as a marketer, I look at the shelf and it's just, it always amazes me. You have like tons of different brands, tons of different labels, they all have relatively the same amount of real estate on that bottle. And it's amazing how people make decisions. Some make it based on price, some make it based on the label. So I want to talk about the branding and business of wine. And let's start with what in your mind differentiates a wine to a consumer and what should truly differentiate a wine to a consumer? It's a great question. Um, It's tough. (laughs) You know, there's, as you said, there's so many things on a label and there's all these regulations worldwide about they're really about making sure quality is simple to understand from a consumer's perspective. So a consumer can go and say, I'm going to spend $20. You know, is it, does it meet this regulation or this regulation? Now the difficulty is we have a, a world of many different countries, many different climates, many different terroirs, and there's so many different laws that don't really work well together. So uh, it can be difficult, absolutely. And I had to go back. You gotta trust the process. You know, when you're in the LCBO, uh, for example, look for the people in the white shirts. They're called product consultants. Um, they usually handle the vintages section. They taste the most wine. They usually study the most wine, um, and they're able to sort of guide you a little bit better. Um, but I guess sort of. You don't want to talk to anybody, understandably. Then I guess there's a few laws, a few tricks, few rules you can keep in mind. The hotter the area, the fuller body your wine is. Hmm. So California will, because it's a lot of sun, it's usually going to be, they're known for their full body reds. Uh, usually it's one of the warmer areas. Same as Australia, you can get full body Shiraz. France, you know, north of France in Burgundy, it's really cold there. You got a lot of wind coming through. Uh, you usually get crisper whites, lighter peanut, lighter reds like Pinot Noirs. So that's a general rule of thumb. You know, think about the climate when you're when you're shopping. Um, and you know, also think about what style you like. You know, there's there's a lot of brands that come through that are trying to speak to one type of consumer. Um, you know, I had a buddy last night actually show me what he was drinking and he had Barolo. He said, I, you know, I, I bought, it was a nice bottle of wine, you know, $30, $40, like great, awesome. He asked me to buy him a case of wine a, a month ago and I didn't think a Barolo would be in his repertoire because he likes full, smooth wines. So he reached into that and he said, I had this, it was good. And then he reached into another one and showed me another one that was, um, real about it was all about aging in bourbon barrels which is the exact opposite you know it's full-bodied probably not nearly as concentrated or complex a real punch in the face sort of wine and you know it's like which one do you like better it's like i don't know they're both the same wow you know like okay fair enough you know like it's just it's knowing what you want to drink and and sort of who's around there to help you out so if you if you're going into a LCBO or the equivalent, um, one of the things you mentioned is to consider and look for the region 
and how that's going to uh, potentially affect the taste. But what are, are there any other clues or things that someone can be looking for to see if it's the, the right product for them? Because I find if I'm buying chips, there's like, it's very detailed. This is the flavor, this is the size. And it's kind of ironic that with wine, most of the real estate on that bottle is focused on the name of the, you know, the name of the, the brand name or where it comes from. And you're actually getting very little in terms of how it's going to taste. Or is the answer, ask the person in the white shirt. <laughs> I mean, if you're open to talking, always ask. You know, it's the same thing when you go into an Apple store. There's a reason why you can't just pick up a product and go wait in line. Mm. You know, they want you to talk to their salespeople. They want you to understand what it is you're buying. Sometimes that can be frustrating because you're like, no, I, I just want these pair of headphones. You know, like I, I get it. You're really excited about it, but just let me buy these. But to make an experience there and to learn something, it's always great to talk to somebody. Mm. But, um, you know, there, unfortunately, there's no real easy answer about learning because each country is different. And this is why wine is so awesome and so tough, you know, because let's compare it to beer. Beer styles might be a little bit easier. You know, you, you know what a pilsner is. You know what a lager is. You know what a, a stout is, you know. Um, so even though this craft beer might be a vanilla chocolate stout, you're like, okay, I can kind of understand what that is when I buy it. But they don't have those categories in wine because it's such a huge industry. And as I said before, it's so different from country to country that the only real way is to dig into it, is to, you know, try these different areas. So, I mean, Italy is known for reds that have a little bit of structure to it. So they've got some acidity. Um, Portugal is a great place to go if you want to be on a budget because they have this excellent full-bodied reds that usually below $20, you can get some great wines there. Um, you know, white in France, whites in France are usually very crisp or clean. Like there's, there's no rule of thumb, really. It's got to know what region is different. Um, but I think the most important thing to understand is the correlation between price and quality. Like that mm -hmm. is the most important thing because a lot of people don't really think about how much a dollar more in their wine goes. So let's look at a $10 bottle of wine, for example. Let's see what it all has to go through to get made. You know, it's got to be grown. It's got to be produced, packaged, sent to the right country, which it's then taxed, sent to the store, and then purchased, which it's then taxed again. Of course, in there somewhere, the producer needs to make a margin to run his business. So at the end of the day, when we look at this $10 bottle of wine, the majority of the cost in there to make up that price isn't the wine, isn't what you're consuming, isn't the drink itself. It's mostly import taxes. In fact, the wine you're drinking out of that $10 bottle of wine is really only worth about 10%. It's really only worth $1. The rest is just the cost of producing that good. But let's take that same example and look at a $20 bottle of wine. Now, all those costs are usually consistent. You know, the tax might be a little bit more if it's percentage, depending on where you are. Uh, you know, it might be a little bit of a better label or a nicer quality glass or whatever. But the fact is that with all those costs staying the same, the value of that wine you're drinking is now worth 25% or $5. And it kind of goes on and on from there. You know, for a $35 bottle of wine, the wine is worth $13 or 35% of the cost. So, 
you know, I'm saying if you reach into that twenty to thirty-five dollar window every now and again, yes, the wine is going to be double the cost than you know if you came in to spend fifteen dollars, but the quality is going to be five times better, which is to me, it's it's crazy. I mean, of course, this, there's a ceiling. There's a lot of premium and ultra premium wines that you know are priced according to supply, and there's a very small percentage because this is, after all, an agricultural good, and there's a specific allocation every year. But it's important to think like, okay, you know, every now and again, even if you're not a big wine drinker or, um, you know, you like to drink on a budget, reach into that 20 to $35 range every now and again. And it will, I, I'm, I'm telling you, it's going to blow your mind. Okay. So this, this might be impossible for you to answer because I know how big the world of wine is, but let's say someone's listening and this I'm, I'm included in this cause I want to know this and I want to splurge. Okay. I, I'm not going hundreds of dollars, but let's say we're mm. going sort of 40, 50, 60 dollars. I want to, for a bottle of wine, splurge something nice. Um, where would I look? Are there certain brands, or even if that's too hard to answer, certain regions or things that you would recommend for a nice splurge bottle of wine? Absolutely. Uh, definitely. There's always one, and you know, not to cop out, but it's important to know what you're looking for. Uh, I think generally for the $40, $50 range, go to Brunello. Okay. Sort of, it's some of the best Italian wines coming out. Um, depending on, you, if you grab a Brunello, you're not going to be disappointed. It's, it's medium to full bodied, a lot of nice structure, you know, but, and it's, but it's balanced. So you're going to have a sip of, sip of your glass and you're not going to like, oh man, I'm going to need a, a nap after you finish the bottle. It's, it's fresh. It's, it's complex. Um, so that would be as a region, my go-to for sure. Um, because yeah, this, this wine is beautiful. A producer's favorite producer of mine, Victoria Del Barbie is a great one. You see that in the LCBO quite a bit. Um, and then for white, white usually, I mean, as a general rule, you get more quality, the more you go up, you know, if I'm shopping at no frills, you know, an example, like, and I'm going for something cheap and cheerful, I usually reach for a white because they're a little bit easier to make. Oh, I might get in trouble for saying that, actually, but whatever. <laughs> um, I would go for, uh, you know, you can go to Burgundy, you can get some fantastic Chardonnays that are crisp and clean for $40, $50. Um, yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of places you can go. I, I kind of, I'm also going to trouble saying, saying this too, but I would kind of steer away from California. California, especially Napa, you're paying, I mean, once again, we're going into costs. I'm, I, you know, I'm a sales marketing guy. I'm going to think about this. Napa wineries aren't going to make money for a long time because they're paying the highest real, highest real estate costs in the world for those vineyards. Because they're so close to San Francisco, it's such a huge tourism drive, and everybody wants and thinks it's the greatest place. But now we see Napa wines that are up in the hundreds of dollars, and they're also selling them super young. I mean, we're talking about Cabernet Sauvignon, which is uh, a late ripening, um, really big bottle wine. It needs time. It's got to chill for a bit. That's why, you know, Brunello's, they've got to be five years old before they release it. Brillos have to be a few years old before they release it because the world understands these aren't going to be good right away. Like, give them time to just chill. But Napa needs, and a lot of like California real estate is so high and expensive, 
these businesses need their money back. So they're releasing these wines and they're not nearly as good um, as what they should be. People are drinking them too young. Just, like, I think it's 97% of the wine that we purchase gets drunk in the next 15 minutes. Like no one's holding wines anymore, which isn't a bad thing. I don't disagree with that. I think there's, there's a lot of people out there that hold wines. It should be more on the producers to release their wines when they think they're ready. But still, you know, it's, yeah, I, there's certain places that I would avoid unless you want to go big, um, like real big in the hundreds, I would say. Um, Napa would be that, but there's still some very exciting regions coming out. Washington is awesome for some full-bodied reds that are a little, not nearly priced out of the market. Uh, Portugal, I'll bring Portugal again, and same as Spain. Spain produces a lot of wine, the most wine in the world. Um, so they have to keep themselves priced responsibly because they've got to sell volume. Um, so you can get some real good quality around $20 and up from there. First of all, I, I love that you, you mention Napa and how so much of it is based on real estate because I've had a Chilean cab and in fact, the sommelier I was, I was speaking to earlier also referenced that you can get wines comparable to what, let's say, a Napa cab would taste like, but more affordable because often what you're paying for there is the branding and the real estate and the storage. And I think a lot of people, um, including myself, often uh, misunderstand why wine is priced the way it is. So I love that you've you've helped us unpack that. The other thing I was thinking of as you were talking about it is health and health, obviously relative term. So it's, you can't say wine is healthy. Wine is not healthy, but I do feel like there's a misconception that it's because it's alcohol, it's unhealthy. I feel like there's a misconception, at least with my dad, that it's got a ton of sugar. He's always, mm. you know, uh, I'm not going to have wine tonight. There's so much sugar in it. I don't even, I don't even know where he gets that. So help debunk that myth is, is wine, where is it on the health spectrum and is it super sugary and is it very caloric and what are your views on that? Yeah, well, there's a lot of ways to go with that. Uh, I mean, first of all, when we talk about, you know, bring it back to what you see on the shelves, the most popular red wines in the world have sugar in them. They have residual sugar. Residual sugar is essentially sugar left over from the fermentation process. Um, so fermentation is pretty simple, you know, by theory, um, sugar in the fruit turns into alcohol. Uh, but anyone that is stopped for any reason, there's some leftover sugar. So some of the biggest brands in the world, Apothic Red, Yellowtail, um, like a North American palate likes sugar, you know, and wine producers, especially the larger ones have figured this out. So when you wake up the next morning and you have a pounding headache and you think, oh, man, I must be allergic to the sulfur or the tans and I'm allergic to red wine. It's like, well, you know, maybe you should look at what you're drinking because the vast majority of wine from Europe isn't sugary. It's dry. Uh, and just because you're reaching for a red wine doesn't mean it's dry. Those are one of the words that it's best to avoid, actually, when you're talking about what you like because it's very – misused uh, when i say i like a dry wine that might mean something because really in actual fact you're drinking a bottle of wine that has almost as much sugar as a can of coca-cola you know um so it definitely does exist 
you know, there's definitely a lot of wines out there with that sugar. And, you know, that's, that's fine too. If that's what, you know, if people like that, obviously a lot of people do because it's the world's best selling wine. Um, but, you know, there's, there's all this, to go back to your original question, there's all this theories out there. And there's the ones that have been proven uh, is that red wine has antioxidants. Mm-hmm. So there's these things called polyphenols, which is essentially part of the skins, which is what gives red wine its color and tannin. You don't see that as much in white wine because white wine usually doesn't have tannin. Some do, most don't, the vast majority don't. So, you know, it, it has been proven that red wine is good for your heart. But like, is, is it healthy? I mean, when you hear about your friend's grandmother that lived to 103, and she says, oh, my secret was a glass of wine and a shot of brandy every day. You know, is it really about the antioxidants? Is, you know, is it really because her ticker was strong? Or is it that she took the time out of the day to enjoy something that she likes, you know, and she really just relaxed with that and taken that time? Is it more mental? You know, that's what I, that's what I always wonder. Um, but then, I mean, as well, there's this huge trend on same thing with grocery stores and produce organics people are more curious about where the wine comes from what goes what goes into my food what goes into the you know the carrot patch that i'm eating now that i'm putting into my body and there's that same mentality now towards wine which never really existed in the 70s and 80s i mean there is there's a lot of chemicals that go into your wine if you don't look into it and whether you believe or not whether that's good or bad for you is based on your beliefs and your sense of studying but there's definitely a movement towards organics, biodynamics, um, wines that are minimal interventionalist, which kind of means that, you know, hands off winemaking. Looking ahead, what do you see as some of the other trends uh, or changes that might happen either in the business of wine uh, or how wine is produced, sold? Uh, Because I imagine that even just with generations, preferences change, tastes change. Absolutely. There's so many changes that's gone on in the last generation. I mean, a lot of businesses are saying millennials are changing the way business happens, you know, based on social media, the amount of communication we want, you know, um, there's always this desire for stories, for uniqueness, something more than just the product, which is great. It's a lot of fun. You know, during COVID, I've been uh, turned into a little bit of a personalized shopper because my friends, they've asked me to buy them wine. And then when that happens, I, because I'm super interested in it, I'm going to write up a couple pages about, well, here's a case of wine. This is why I bought them. This is the story behind this cool little producer. Uh, this is why you should drink it. This is why it matters. Um, but there's so many changes that's happening. And from a, a macro perspective, Europe is drinking less wine. You know, young people are drinking more spirits, more cocktails. You know, there's a sense of doing the opposite of what their parents did. North America is drinking more wine. You know, the U.S. for the first time ever is the highest consumer of wine in the world. That hasn't happened last year. So there's a big shift from, you know, my parents had malt liquor on the table. I want to have red wine Uh, or the opposite in the case of Spain. And then in terms of micro trends but what we see there's can is slow we're very slow to react we know what we like and we change very slowly so usually things start in paris they start in london they start in europe 
And then a couple years later, they're going to happen in the States. Then a couple years later, they're going to happen in Canada. So when it's happening here, like the new trend is already happening. So there's already lots of London bars that specialized in no alcohol bars, no alcohol cocktails, no alcohol wine. Everything they have is alcohol free. Um, people in the States, they drink a lot of wines in cans. Single serve can formats. We don't really have that here yet. I mean, it's coming. It's on its way, but it's slow. Um, people in Europe drink rosé all year round. I think we should drink rosé all year round and lots more sparkling. We don't. We will eventually because that's the way the trends have all come. We kind of just, we're the little brother in the wine consumption. We, we want to do what we want to do, but we're just too young. You know, we're, we're getting there eventually. Is there something about wine or this kind of entire world that encapsulates it that you wish people knew or that you want to leave wine lovers or aspiring wine lovers with? Absolutely. It's the wine world is so big. We haven't said that enough. I mean, we've said a lot, but not even enough to close your mind to regions or varieties is not doing anybody any favors, least of all yourself. There's mentalities of, oh, I like this varietal, or I don't drink blends, or you know anything but Chardonnay. All these things are really just changing how you perceive the world of wine. You're closing doors. It's, 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 it's useless. I mean, it's great to have preferences, and it's great to know them. But you know, understand that 99.99% of wines that you drink are blends. You know, even if it's Cabernet Sauvignon on the label, the, most likely it's not 100% Cabernet in there. And even if it is, it's from a different vineyard, from different barrels. You know, that's why winemaking is so important and why there's a big industry in there. Uh, and that the world of wine consumption is changing because the world of winemaking is changing. So. 10, 15, 20 years ago, Australian Shiraz was super popular. Everyone loved big, bold red wines. Same thing in Europe. But consumers are, ch I mean, producers are changing. The technology is getting better. The clonal selections of actually what they're growing is getting much better. And they, they're changing the way they make the wine to be more balanced. So, you know, you might reach for a region one time and then say, oh, I don't like that. But two years later, it could be completely different. So never shut yourself off to things. Always be open um, and just know what you like and what you don't like, but don't turn yourself off to those. Does that make sense? Totally. And, and as you were explaining that, it, it made me think once again of my dad who um, he, I spoke about him in a past episode. He's, his, his wine tastes are binary. It's either a full bodied Chianti or, or everything else. So what I was actually thinking with your permission I actually just thought of this now. Could I could I get him on the phone? I want him, I want him to follow that advice. I want him to find something new to try. He's such a creature of habit. With your permission, could I get him on the phone, have him describe what he likes about a full-bodied can't deer, however he describes it, and see if we can make one new suggestion for him? Absolutely. Right, let's see if he picks up. Of course. Let's, we're going to give this a try. My father, Brian. Okay. So, Dad, you're actually, you're live right now on <laughs> Freshly Brewed, episode nine. Oh, great. 
And I'm speaking to an amazing sommelier, Ian Casterton. He's, he's actually the sommelier at the Fairmont Pacific Rim in Vancouver. And we're talking about exploring new wines. And so what I love is, can you describe the type of wine you like so that maybe Ian can help you find a new type of wine to enjoy? Well, thank you, Jeff, for uh, getting uh, learning from me uh, firsthand. Well, <laughs> when I, when I um, come into a, a restaurant, whether it's a, a fine dining establishment or a fast food uh, a place, um, I always look for something that's got a, a screw top on top. Okay. Um, all right. So, um, no, but all kidding aside, I, I like something that, um, is full body as uh, Jeff has mentioned. Um, I, I don't like, um, like a, a softer wine, uh, less intense. I like the reason I like full body is, uh, I, I like the intensity of it. Okay. Um, so typically I, I, I find it just, it, a full body tends to relax me a little bit more than say a Pinot or something like that. Sure. Yeah. Great. And, and Brian, I have to ask, I mean, Jeffrey and I've been talking about wine for a little bit and before this podcast too, has he brought you some wines, you know, when you've been gracious enough to host them for Sunday dinner that you're just like, Oh man, where did you get this? What have I taught you? Uh, yeah, usually it's the wine that I've given him. He regifts back to me. <laughs> oh, oh, I see. What are, what are some What are some of your favorites, Dad? Well, I'm um, I'm an Antonori fan, um, and I, I enjoy that. Um, I do like um, some, um, for example, on the Antonori side, the uh, uh, you know the Tinanellos and and wines like that. Um, I also like the you know again a California Cab. Cap Sauvignon, um, I enjoy that, and you know different different uh, uh, styles from from that region. Absolutely, yeah. There, I mean, there is so many places that produce fantastic full-bodied reds. Um, having being a fan of Italy and Antonori, that to me means that you also like a little bit of structure to it. So it's not just a full round wine; it's something with acid it makes you feel refreshed a little bit it cleanses the palate as well um so while you like bold flavors and complexity you also like a little bit of structure there um so i would bring you to regions that are warm to get that same amount of weight to it but also producers that can also get that good balance uh so with that i would bring you to washington state i think washington state and the interior in a place called Red Mountain has some fantastic Cabernets. Uh, Hedges is one of my favorite producers. They produce great full-body reds in a desert-like area, um, but also just get the perfect amount of ripeness that they can harvest it just with that still amount of great acidity to make a well-structured wine. I'd also maybe take you to Western Australia. Uh, Australia is going through a huge revolution a huge change from the days of of yellowtail and and full-bodied shirazes uh that kind of might give you a headache into something especially in western australia um margaret river where they're really finessed uh they're still full body because it's nice and warm down there but there's a lot of structure as well and then in italy because i can tell you're a big italy fan start shopping sicily you know, in, in Sicily, they were kind of known for supplying the rest of Italy with 
bland reds to sort of mix in with their blends. But now, over the last 20, 30 years, they've developed in their own, and they're producing fantastic wines that are really a lot of fun uh, and definitely full-bodied as well. So those are the three places I'd kind of bring you to if we were looking at a wine list together. Oh, my God. So, so Dad, you owe, you owe Ian about $1,000 for that advice. I was just going to ask Ian, or do you want an indo, a window or aisle seat? I'm just booking our flights right now as we speak. <laughs> <laughs> hey, if you guys come here and visit me, the first glass of champagne's on me. First glass right, of champagne. Dad, thanks for, uh, thanks for, for the spur of the moment joining the podcast. And uh, I will now I have a, an option for you for Father's Day. All right. Thanks, gentlemen, for uh, calling in. Talk to you soon. <laughs> nice to meet you, Brian. Right, you too. Well, Ian, that was awesome. And you, you did just give me some, some good, uh, good ideas from Father's Day. Whether he'll actually drink them or not will be the, will be the, the real test. Um, as we come to a close here, how can people get connected with you, meet you, learn more about you? Yeah, of course. Uh, I mean, I'm on Instagram, Ian Caston. Um, pretty much, I mean, I'm, yeah, you find, find me there for the most part. I'm, uh, you know, this little thing of, of COVID, you know, trying to take the most of it. Actually, I might start a little side gig of side hustle of being a personalized shopper because it is fun to, to, you know, spread. I'm, I've spent so many hours in the books and I will continue to spend hours in the books. So, um, yeah, always happy to chat wine. Hey, thank you so much for the time. And for anyone listening, I really hope that this has given you even more rich, useful information on your journey to learn more about this incredible world. Ian, stay safe out there. Thank you so much. And uh, we'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Jeffrey.